0: Hello and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd. I'm talking today with Stephen Deusner, author of the book "Where the Devil Don't Stay: Traveling the South with the Drive-by Truckers." Stephen, thanks so much for coming on the program.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: So I've been a fan of uh, Drive-by Truckers for maybe about ten years now. I've I've spent a lot of time listening to them. I've seen them live uh, several times. Uh, I never am quite clear on what that weird name means. Do you have uh, any insight into why that's the name of this band, <laughs> Drive-By Truckers? It sort of makes them a, a little bit unrecommendable,
1: you know? It is It is hard. When I've told uh, people who don't know about the band, the band I'm working on, it's always a little bit like, oh, but, you know, it's the Drive-By Truckers, but they're really good, like, you know, right. uh, it's, but no, I mean, and they'll, they'll be the first to admit it's not a very good name. Uh, in fact, I think Patterson, who's one of the uh, frontmen, has written an article for NPR about how bad that name is. Um, but I think it comes from a time when, you know, in the 90s, when you had a lot of alt country bands coming up and there was a sort of sense of humor that was driven by sort of puns and wordplay and that kind of like ironic country kitsch. And so I think that's partly where it comes from. But on a more serious note, and, and one that I think definitely redeems the name and speaks to where they're coming from and what they want to do musically, you know, you've got two parts of it. You've got Trucker, which kind of speaks to this kind of country, everyman, working class kind of ethos, which is certainly what they do. But then you've got Drive-By, which speaks to uh, a very different experience, a Black experience, uh, one that was taken up by uh, a lot of hip-hop bands that they were a fan of. Um, Patterson in particular has talked about how uh, influential uh, a lot of hip-hop, especially Southern hip-hop, was for him as a songwriter. And so I think that was a way of pointing to that influence in a way that I think a lot of fans of Southern rock might not pick up on or not, might not think about and I think they wanted to sort of foreground that, that there was that aspect of what they were doing.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I think of Drive by Truckers as being one of several bands that are not musically at all hip-hop, but that have lyrically are very much influenced by that kind of storytelling style that you hear in hip-hop. Like, I know uh, John Darniel of The Mountain Goats is a big hip-hop fan. Craig Finn from The Hold Steady is a big hip-hop fan. And, and I feel like I never thought of Drive by Truckers as being in that category until
1: I read your book. Oh, well... Yeah no they and and I think what what unites those three bands is this really strong emphasis on on character and story and especially setting and I you know I think you could probably draw lines from each of those bands and and those elements to hip hop. mm Mhm.
0: You start the book with a description of a Patterson Hood solo show where he plays the song, What It Means, which is kind of his response to the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, why did you decide to open the book that way?
1: You know, it's, it's funny. Um, I shuffled the chapters around a lot. I, I tried different orders. I, I tried different things. But that opening remained constant throughout the entire book. Um, and partly that is, um, something that's very personal to me, which was I had been living in England, uh, you know, f- the first half of 2016, which is where I started writing this book. And I came back and that was the first live show I saw was at Saturn there. And, hmm. um, I think kind of being sort of just like dropped in very abruptly from like Birmingham, England to Birmingham, Alabama, (laughs) it it like, it left a huge impression. And, you know, in England, they had just voted uh, for Brexit, which I think like the morning it was announced, people were like, this is a bad idea. It was like a, (laughs) like a slow motion kind of no, you know, from a movie or something like that. Uh, It was, and it just felt like something was happening. Something was something like this bad wave was starting. And uh, I think that totally came through in that year's election and some things that have happened since then. And I remember that performance of that song standing out because it just felt like it was coming from the center of the storm. And it was this guy who was trying hard to sort of make sense of something but was not wanting to put too fine a point on it, was not really wanting to speak for people he couldn't speak for. He was not trying to come up with pat answers. I mean, the song is called What It Means, and it's it's just a guy kind of asking questions and trying to figure out what this says about, like all these events say, you know, all this violence says about his country. And I thought, you know, in that moment, I found something that to me spoke to, what this band had accomplished over 20 years and why they were so important to me and to so many other people, uh, not just Southerners, but people from all over the world. And it kind of showed how people, how the band had helped people make sense of where they came from and how to sort of reconcile a love of home with some of the uglier aspects of that place or, or some of the uglier history of that place.
0: One of the kind of arcs that I see in the course of Drive by Trekker's career is going from a band, being a band that's really concerned about Southern history to being a band that kind of understands that the core questions of Southern history are also the core questions of American history. You know, how do we move forward with any sense of of pride uh, when our history is a history of genocide and slavery? That's not a question that is only relevant in Alabama, um, how do you feel like they made that journey? What what were kind of the steps that made them go from being a band that has an album called Southern Rock Opera to being a band <laughs> that has a band called uh, an album called American Band?
1: Yeah, it's such an interesting trajectory too. Um, and so they they I mean that's that's they call that the duality of the Southern thing in the Southern Rock Opera, and that's like a, a, a well quoted lyric and one that I think is so open to a lot of interpretation. And that's, that is what I have always interpreted to mean is that it is a, it is about being both proud of where you come from and disgusted by it. And I think that that mix creates a kind of activism that makes you want to try and change that place. Um, And so I think that that trajectory kind of starts where, they're just a band who who just wants to have something. They just want to play for audiences and they want to sort of represent where they came from. I mean, Patterson and Mike Cooley, who's the other front man, is, um, they both hail from North Alabama and the Muscle Shoals region. And they kind of grew up and came of music age at a time when that area was not putting out as much great music as it had in the past. And they, they sort of wanted to put that on the the place back on the map. And they did that by writing about that place. Uh, Often not in glowing terms as on the song, butthole bill. But uh, I think that stuck with them throughout everything they did was just like, they wanted to put this place back on the map, whether that place was, you know, the shoals or Athens where they kind of got their start or just the South in general. And I think that they were so aware of where they came from and they were so aware of how that place was misrepresented in pop culture. And they kind of came at that with this kind of irreverent attitude that, you know, really fed the first, decade of albums and um or decade 15 years of albums i mean like all the way up to american band and i remember patterson telling me when i interviewed him for american band before the book started that um he kind of had this feeling like maybe they had run their course like the albums weren't getting as much attention as they had in the past and they weren't getting reviewed as as much that sort of thing and then American band comes along and it's a very different album for them. They're addressing a lot of the same issues that they've always addressed, just not through the prism of character and setting. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that to me is, that's the turning point. I mean, it not only rejuvenated their career, but it kind of threw everything that had come before into the sharp relief and kind of created that trajectory that you were talking about just a minute ago of, of like, of, this is a band that's it 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 almost made so much sense you thought they had been like had mapped this out beforehand that this was always going to be their destination it just seems so perfect um and so i i yeah i think that that's that was kind of the the culmination of that and and they've continued it since then on the three albums since then but uh that was really the 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 pivotal album and and yeah. it's amazing too that you just don't get Uh, a a whole lot of bands who make such a pivotal album so late in their career. Um, You know, you, you do have some like Dylan and the stones and people like that, but you know, it's, it's very rare, rare thing. Yeah. I, I think, I agree. I think that album's a real
0: highlight in their, in their collection for sure. Um, Do you think there's a way in which, I mean, you mentioned Athens being a big important band for them and they, they still do a a festival or, or, you know, a residency in Athens, uh, I don't know if they've been doing it during the pandemic, but but <laughs> regularly they do. the, the heathens, um, I don't know. Do you say is it a festival? Would you say or? Oh gosh, it's convening, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> do you feel like there's a sense in which it was maybe necessary to have the sort of Athens scene of the '80s and '90s to kind of clear the ground away? for a band like Drive-By Truckers to come around? Like like people like the B-52s, R.E.M., Pylon, who are coming out of Athens, Georgia, but were really not, ex- maybe with the exception of R.E.M., really not interested in the kind of heritage of, of Southern rock to kind of say, we're different, we're our own thing, we're a break from the past. Was that a kind of necessary step for then a band to be like, listen, we're not you know, redneck racists, but we do think Freebird kind of rips, you know, was that kind of, do you think that was kind of a necessary dialectic?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, I think that's the history of Athens is people saying, yeah, but it could, it, it could also sound like this, or it could also sound like this. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be all Macon, Georgia. It doesn't have to be the Almond brothers. And I think the drive by truckers came along and said, It can be both it can be everything it's like you know it's 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 a it's um it's a lot of different things happening all at once in 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 regards to athens but yeah um and you know that place is such a interesting incubator for a band like this because you've got someone like vic chestnut who's actually younger than patterson by just a couple of months but had already found his voice as a songwriter and as mm-hmm. a singer, that was hugely influential to Patterson. Yeah. Um, and he's Southern. And- I mean, his his songwriting voice is super
0: steeped in Flannery O'Connor and William Faulkner and even Alan Tate and people like that.
1: Right. Oh yeah, uh, unmistakably. You cannot hear him and think this guy comes from South Dakota. Like you could, I I feel like I, the first time I heard it, I could pinpoint on a map in Georgia where it came from. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, and, and I think that maybe for Patterson, especially opened up an idea that, oh, I can just sound Southern. I don't have to disguise this. I can just, I can just be this Southern in the song and stuff like that. And, uh, and at the same time, you're also getting uh, a lot of these, Elephant Six bands coming to town, which is musically totally different, but there's this philosophy that bands can just be these like mercurial, ever-changing, ever mutating things. And I think that by adopting that, the drive by truckers allowed themselves to be like, okay, if we two guys show up tonight, we're just going to play as the drive by truckers as two guys. If eight guys show up, we're going to still play as the drive by truckers. And they could go on tour in whatever configuration and it didn't matter if somebody left and it could just kind of be this rolling ongoing thing. And I think through a lot of hardship, especially early on. I think that kind of kept them afloat and kept this project going. It, it didn't have to be the set quartet like REM. It could Mm -hmm. be anything. It could be this kind of free floating thing. And, uh, uh, and I'll also add, I literally just got back from, uh, from Heathen's Homecoming a couple of weeks ago. Um, I don't know what you call it, but they do still have it, and it is still a really intense and amazing weekend. It's They did four nights this year, uh, different set lists, different openers every night. It's one of the most amazing like rock shows I've ever seen.
0: I'll have to get down there one of these years. Oh, it's um, amazing. We talked a bit about Patterson. He he. I definitely get the sense in your book that he was the more loquacious of the two uh, main... <laughs> main members of the drive-by truckers, but I I've always felt like Mike Cooley was, uh, in, in some ways an underrated component of the band, maybe because he talks less in interviews. I, do you think it's fair to say that Patterson sort of the rocker of the band and, and Cooley's the like towns van Zant style
1: country singer? <laughs> I, th- I think that's pretty fair. Uh, although I think, uh, I think, uh, Cooley does rock out on a, on a lot of these songs. Um, but yeah, he's definitely steeped in country music and he, he writes those country songs so well. And, uh, you know, I was thinking, just singing, um, love like this, which is this really twisted country song about like a, a pretty destructive relationship. And yet it's, he just sings it in such a way that, that makes it sound, uh, very real and, 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 uh, entertaining and and, uh but yeah but he he's definitely the more country of the two Mm -hmm.
0: one of my favorite uh cooley songs is carl perkins cadillac which you (laughs) kind of depict as like a credo for the band what do you feel like that song suggests about drive-by truckers approach to kind of the rock and roll canon for lack of a better term
1: yeah it's it's funny i've been thinking about that song in relationship to a new song he's um just released called Every Single Storied Flame Out, which is off their upcoming album. It's not explicitly connected, but it has that same sort of kill your idols kind of uh, approach. And, you know, Carl Perkins Cadillac is sort of about this story about Sun Records that Sam Phillips would, you know, whoever had the first number one hit, I think it was, or maybe the first gold record, something like that would get, he would buy them a Cadillac. And of course that Cadillac came out of their earnings. So it It was like, like they they would buy
0: themselves a Cadillac.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it was sort of like, you know, he made them and he's also like, I don't know. He kind of exploited them a little bit as well. And um, so, Excuse me, he I feel like that song is about why you're why you do what you do, like why you commit yourself to this rock and roll dream, to this to this music, to this lifestyle that doesn't always offer much reward. And you know, what what does your definition of success look like? Excuse me.
0: I can cut out the coughing uh, in, in post-production, so don't worry. Thank you. I'll just I'm, yeah, just note. Down, I'm just noting down when it happens, so I'll be able to go back and edit it out.
1: Uh,
0: um, Sorry to hear that you're uh, you're sick. I mean, it seems like there's some kind of cold going around. It's it's allergies. Oh, it's just allergies. it hit my yeah. yeah. It hit Maybe my
1: so. wife like a a train. She had it worse than I did, but it's just been. It's been awful, oh. so, Uh So we were talking about Carl Perkins' Cadillac. Yeah. Um, okay. So yeah, I think that song is about why you do what you do, why you commit yourself to rock and roll when the rewards aren't always very rewarding. Like, and what does success even look like to you? Does it look like a Cadillac? Does it look like a Grammy? You know, there's that line about uh, Jerry Lee driving his Cadillac to Nashville, where they promise him a Grammy, and he turns the Cadillac around because he doesn't need a paperweight.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, sort of like, what of those? Like, what makes or, what makes this meaningful to you? And I think that's such a an interesting question to pose in a song about Elvis and about Johnny Cash and about these guys who achieve great success, but also at these you know, with, with great consequence to that success as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And I always think about songs like that by the truckers, but also by other bands, Uh, you know, you're going to have to live with that song on stage at least for the next year. They're going to have to live with these songs night after night. And I always feel like consciously or not, you know, that's a way of keeping yourself honest When you're out there on tour, that's a way of reminding yourself why you do something and why you do it the way that you do it. And I think there are other songs like that that you could point out to in some of these albums that are, you know, that are sort of messages to themselves, uh, like Hell No, I Ain't Happy Mm -hmm. or something like that, that that they're they're writing with the idea that they're going to have to live with these songs, and so they're trying to to <clears throat> ground these messages in these in, in these songs and sort of keep themselves honest. Yeah. Uh,
0: speaking of kind of classic uh, great acts of rock and roll, uh, their album Southern Rock Opera is a sort of complicated, uh, multi-stranded narrative about uh, Alabama in the sixties and seventies, and and one of the main strands is the band Leonard Skinnerd. Um, I've been listening to the drive by truckers. Like I said, for a, a while, I still don't know the answer to this question. Do they like Leonard Skinnerd?
1: <laughs> I think uh, I, I loved Cooley's description. He's like, I think of Leonard Skinnerd. Like I think of Jesus. A lot of the work is great, but I hate the fans. <laughs> sure. Um <laughs> I think they, I think they have a genuine love for that band, especially that band that was active in the '70s. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, and they were when I interviewed them, they were talking about specific songs. They obviously knew this music very well. I don't think it was somebody who was just like, kind of came into this, did some research, and wrote about Leonard Skinner. They had lived with this music for a long time. They also
0: thought about it yeah they also mentioned in that album that they were sort of at, when they were teenagers in the 70s kind of re, at least Patterson was kind of rebelling against that music and it was the music that the the jocks would play in the, in the parking <laughs> lot before football games and he would be listening to I don't know what he'd be listening to but not not Skynyrd right
1: yeah he had very eclectic taste even then because you know his dad is um David Hood so he he was exposed to a lot of different music um, and it's funny that while Patterson is exploring, Cooley's just listening to the radio and whatever comes on the radio. And and he likes Skinner, but he hated Freebird until he finally decided to listen to the entire song. And when it you know shifts gears towards the end, he was like, yes, this is amazing. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and it's weird too, because like, I think my experience was more like Patterson's where for the longest time, I was just like, Skinner is just awful. And I, there, there's sort of the music of my bullies growing up. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, before, before this, I'd kind of given them another chance and I I liked it well enough, but one of the great uh, surprises of writing this book was falling in love with a lot of their songs and realizing just how complex Leonard Skinner is. Like, it's almost like they represent a time that is so disconnected from how we think about things now that it's almost hard to even reconcile the actual band with the reputation they've they've developed over time.
0: <clears throat> and with the reputation the surviving members have curated, right? Like they've purposely aligned themselves with right wing politics. In their kind of reincarnated
1: uh, uh, status, right? Oh yeah, I kind of refer to them as like a zombie band because right. like ten years after that plane crash, they they kind of rose from the dead, did this reunion show that was so massively popular that they just kept going and kept going with it. But without Ronnie Van Zant, you didn't have that that uh, that nuance, that complicated quality that contradiction and i think it was just kind of like yeah like it was it was kind of wave the confederate flag music and and it was it was very right-wing very reactionary music um and yeah i i think it's i think part of what's at the heart of southern rock hoppers trying to reconcile those two things like this band that was so amazing and so sort of set this idea, this complicated idea of what Southern rock could be. And it's like this kind of gross thing that it became. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, one of the interesting nuances about Skinner that that Patterson points out in, in the song Ronnie and Neil is that even though there's that line in Sweet Home Alabama where he says, make sure Neil Young can remember a Southern man don't need him around anymore. Ronnie and I guess the other members of Skinner too were big Neil Young fans, Uh, why is that something that, I mean, that's like a relatively small, you know, detail of kind of musical arcana that, that Patterson feels the need to kind of put on, put on record, put on the record, um, and, and kind of say, no, 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 they, they didn't hate Neil Young. It's not their fault that he gets death threats (laughs) when he tours in the South. Um, what do you, what do you feel like, what is that kind of, what's that supposed to say about, about the, the relationship between Skinner and, and kind of the history of racism
1: in, in the South? Yeah, I mean, I think that they're, you know, one of the things that they're they're playing with are these kind of like, an urban legend is not the right word, but- Rural legend, you know, maybe. Myths, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like these myths that that rise up around, among other things, rock stars. And I, you know, there's the myth that Ronnie Van Zant was buried in his Neil Young t-shirt, which is not true, but it's an interesting- legend. It's an interesting bit of lore that like, why would you tell that? Like, why, why would that become a thing to tell people? Mm -hmm. And so I think, uh, especially with Southern man and then sweet home Alabama kind of sparring against each other, you know, it it became too easy to take sides in that, in that particular fight. And so I always thought that that was an interesting bit of rock and roll history to put into a song. To clarify that you know it's not just these two sides butting heads against each other, but these two people who were intertwined and had a had a, a lot of uh, mutual respect and admiration for each other, and that maybe didn't always come through in the music, mm-hmm. uh, but but behind the music there was something larger and, and more complicated going on. Um, so. Uh, yeah, I, I was I always liked that that little bit because that was the first time I'd really because I, I knew that I knew about that that kind of fight between them, but I did not know that there was you know something else behind it. I did not know that Neil Young wrote a song for for Leonard Skinner that they never got to record. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just seemed like a an interesting way to dispel certain myths about the South. Uh, yeah
0: um i I, that song always that line in in um sweet home alabama always like bothered me at like summer camp dances and stuff when i was a kid i'd be like no i'm on team neil but
1: maybe it's more complicated (laughs) well i i have always hated the song southern man i I, and it's not even it's partly it's this sentiment you know because it feels like it's attacking me but also Mm -hmm. it just feels like it's it's a straw man kind of song yeah it's like like it's not even You're his hating- best song about Alabama. <laughs> exactly. Exact. For a song to be remembered so well, it's like not even yeah. in his top, I don't know, thousand. <laughs> <You> know? <laughs> I think he's probably about up there now. Yeah, yeah. So I never did like that song. So I was always team Skinnered, but I also heard Sweet Home Alabama, like it seemed like every time I turned on the radio mm-hmm. and I grew to hate that song. So... Uh, just for, through repetition, but uh, that's also not one of their best songs either. So it's mm-hmm. it's it's odd that these two people are represented by maybe not their best their best output.
0: Yeah. And I, I, and it's not just a Southern thing too. I mean, Leonard Skinner is beloved throughout the country. I, I remember uh, driving through rural Maine at night and the DJ played, uh, played Freebird and it's a very <laughs> long song. And after it, he goes, that was of course, Freebird by Leonard Skinner. And up next we have the live version of Freebird. <laughs> so I was listening to Freebird for like a half an hour. Oh, and wow. you know, it's, there's something to it. It's not, you know, it's it's very cliche, but um, but you know, hits become hits for a reason. It's not a bad song.
1: No, and and there's a, a British TV show called The Old Grey Whistle Test that from the 70s, and they played that. And man, they played Freebird on that, and they tore it up. I mean, it's one of the best televised live performances I've seen. And the and and apparently the the British. Uh, uh, director just let left the camera on them. I mean, it's a long song and they didn't pause for commercial. They just let them jam for almost 20 minutes. It was, it was, wow. it's pretty, if, if, if you can look, go look that up. It's, it's, it's really remarkable. Yeah.
0: It's part of the reason that, they were drawn to Skinner that they kind of saw them as like kindred spirits in the way that like Skinner had been a working band, a kind of working class band who had just practiced all the time because they didn't want to work some shitty factory job and, you know, eventually found some success. Was that kind of like a, a potential career path for the truckers? I mean, by the time Southern Rock Ambar came out, Patterson and and Cooley had been playing together for something like 15 years. Did they kind of see some of their work ethic reflected in Skinner?
1: Oh, most definitely. I, I, you know, the Skinner had the the hell house. They called it. It was their practice space. It was like a, a shed out in the swamp, and it would get so hot that they would basically strip down and just jam, and for hours and hours and hours. I mean, they practiced every day despite those horrible conditions, and they got super tight. And I think the truckers despite the fact that they never rehearsed and made a point to never rehearse really saw something in that work ethic that was inspiring to them. And I think they applied that to other aspects of band life, like touring. They were hard, Mm -hmm. hard tours, um, early in their career. And so I definitely think that there was something about that work ethic that they identified with, as well as the fact that, um, you know, this was a, a band that they really, there was not a whole lot else for them to do other than go work at the factory or get some sort of mundane job. And there was nothing that they, that they really wanted to do. Like they were sort of built for rock and roll and that was about it. And I think that's been one of the motivating factors is uh, behind drive by truckers and, and something that, that uh, nearly everybody in the band sets something to the effect of we're just not good for anything else. And I think that's also something that they saw in Skinner. because I, I, you know, that, that there's just not a whole lot that Ronnie Van Zant is going to be good at beyond being, you know, a, a rock star or a, yeah. a, a, a rock and roll frontman. you know? Yeah. I could see, I could see Patterson teaching English at like
0: some small liberal arts college in Tennessee, <laughs> but other than that, I think you're right.
1: Um so I can after see that too, I'll
0: take that class. Yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, read The Confederacy of Dunces or something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah Barry Hannah and Vic Chestnut on the same on the same curriculum is what I want to see. Sounds good.
0: Um so after Southern Rock Opera uh, was was released, they bring on Jason Isbell to the band, and he's another guy from North Alabama. Um it's a it's a weird decision to as a band that has two great singer-songwriters and guitarists, to bring on another singer-songwriter guitarist, um, why did they hire Jason Isbell?
1: I think they're just hoarders. I think they're just hoarding all the great <laughs> songwriters.
0: Um, you know, I, I, I mean, it's sort of like if you hear Jason Isbell and he doesn't, he doesn't have a band, and you're, you know, you could if you could hire him, why not? But it's also like. In a way, it's it's a sort of like selfish but also selfless gesture to be like, we're going to bring on this kid who who might overshadow us in five years.
1: Yeah, and and didn't seem all that unhappy when he did. I mean, I, they're all great friends, and I, I've never detected any bitterness uh, that they might have about his success at all. Like, you know, I think they're happy that he he uh, he kind of graduated from from the truckers and and went on to greater things like but uh yeah no it's i think as with a lot of things it just kind of happened by happenstance like they had a guitar player named rob malone and he sings and plays guitar on southern rock opera and they were they self-released this album and was starting to pick up some steam And they got Spin Magazine to come down to the Shoals to do a story on them. And so they set up to play the entire album acoustically um, for the writer. And Rob Malone just doesn't show up. Meanwhile, like they're kind of just like embarrassed by this. Like this is very unprofessional. They were very unhappy and it just doesn't also doesn't sound good. They need that other guitar player. And Patterson spots Jason Isabel, who he he had known. They had played a couple of shows, like, like solo acoustic shows together. And um, he knew Jason knew all this material. And so he was like, hey, why don't you just come up and play in the band? And he just didn't leave for five years. Um, and, you know, it, I think one of the things that I found really charming about talking to Jason for the book was just how much he learned, uh, just by being in this band, not only about the South and how you can write about it as a subject, but about music. And he'd never heard pylon or PJ Harvey or the Pixies. He'd never been on an airplane. He'd never been to New York city. He'd barely been out of the state. Uh, he went up to Memphis for, uh, for college and, uh, that was about as far as he'd gone. So like, I think they kind of showed the world to him and, you know, it, it, they'd been working at this for 15 years and he just kind of came into this band that had this audience. And I think that kind of freaked him out a little bit too, because he started doing some things that were inadvisable with regards to alcohol and drugs and uh, ended up getting kicked out. But again, like I think that the lessons he took from being in the Dry by Truckers are paying off to this day, and mm-hmm. uh, in, in pretty much everything he does. So, um, yeah, I think it was a win-win for for everybody involved in the long run.
0: Yeah, I wonder too. I mean, I, I think his best album is Southeastern, which is the album he recorded after he got sober. And I wonder if that was maybe one of the steps on his, you know, road to rock bottom. That you know, get it maybe getting kicked out of the band in some ways. I don't know, maybe spurred him to look at some of the choices he'd been making. I'm not, I'm not a, I don't know him and I'm not a psychologist or anything, but I, I wonder if maybe there was a deeper significance in that as well.
1: I, I totally agree. I think that's his best album. And I think it's very significant that his best album came when he got sober. Um, and, and yeah, I think, I think he did have to own up to a lot of bad decisions, bad behavior you know, a marriage, uh, that went bad while he was in the band. Uh, he was married a marriage to, to somebody who was in the band. In the band yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, there's a whole lot to own up to that. And, and I, th- I think, you know, he seems to be still owning up to that in the way that I think all, you know, people suffering addictions have to continually own up because it's not a, it's not a recovery is not a thing that has a destination it's mm-hmm. just you're always sort of on it and you're always living with that and i think that that that's something that he has foregrounded in his music uh there's the song on reunions which is maybe my second favorite of his albums that's uh it it gets easier but it never gets easy and mm-hmm. i i think uh that he he's found a way to really speak to that in song in a meaningful way yeah i mean he's Maybe one of the most
0: like popularly successful, you know, broadly speaking, rock and roll singer songwriters of the past twenty years. At this point, I mean, he he had a song in A Star Is Born.
1: Like it doesn't get much bigger than that. <laughs> and he's in the next Scorsese movie too. So you know, yeah, he's 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 doing pretty well. Um, yeah, he his level of success is really remarkable, especially considering that he's not part of like the. The Nashville mainstream he's not getting radio play like Luke Bryan yet he is he's he's huge he you know he's uh he's definitely one of the best uh Twitter users yes uh, in rock and roll his (laughs) Twitter account is incredible
0: but yeah I I I looked into getting tickets for his uh upcoming show in Brooklyn it was like 80 or 85 bucks or something like that I mean he's you know he's big time (laughs) Oh, wow, um, I'd also, I mean, it's really just incredible to me, like how much he absorbed from them so fast too. Like I didn't realize until I read your book that the song outfit was based on the actual advice his dad gave him when he joined the band. And it's already <laughs> like such a, not only such a great song, but such a great drive by trucker song. It just feels like totally of a piece with everything that they'd recorded before that.
1: Yeah, and it's so rich with detail. I mean, he even tells the the, the make of the car he was conceived in, mm-hmm. and the town that he's not supposed to steal paint from. Like, like it's just that level of detail. I think was something that that he picked up from the band. But also, again, like one of those songs where you know you're going to sing that every night. You're gonna you're gonna have to live up to that song, and you know I don't know that that necessarily worked while he was in the truckers, but I think mm. it, it seems to be working now. And, uh, but yeah, that song is, yeah, I, I, even now when he plays it, like for people who have never heard the truckers version, who are fans only of his solo material, it's still a favorite. Yeah.
0: There's a great moment in the uh, live acoustic album that he did with Cooley and Patterson where someone screams out for outfit and he goes, I love that song. I was playing that song all day. I was humming it all the way to the theater, but I never play that song right after someone requests it. So you can hear yourself say that or you can hear me play it, but you can't do both. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just a great, a great way to kind of put him in his place, but also to, you know, genuinely acknowledge. I do appreciate that you like this song I wrote, but uh, I got other stuff. <laughs> I'd love to talk about another Isbell song that you write about in the book, which is uh, TVA, which is a, a sort mm. of I, I feel like a kind of lackluster song in its DBT version. But the, there's a live album on I forget which Jason Isbell live album, but, but where it really comes alive and uh, becomes a song that, at least for me and my sort of like nostalgia for the New Deal, uh, is sort of unspeakably moving um, when it talks <laughs> about the the guys from the Works Progress Administration coming to this field in North Alabama and giving his grandfather a job. Um, What do you feel like, I mean, that's another sort of, that's another side of the Southern thing that, you know, this, the South is uh, and, and, and has been for a long time, one of the regions that disproportionately receives federal aid, um, you know, relative to what it brings in in taxes and, and large parts of the Southern economy are completely dependent on these big government projects, not, you know, the the TVA, the Tennessee Valley administration in particular, but, you know, electricity co-ops and, you know, damming projects and agricultural subsidies. I mean, that seems to be a, a you know, one kind of example of, of Isbell kind of trying to say, you can ground a kind of progressive redistributive politics in the history of this place that I'm from. Do you feel
1: like that's kind of what he's expressing in that song? That's an interesting aspect. And, and I- I never thought of it in terms of the South getting a disproportionate amount of federal funding for that. Although I'm, I'm, I'm not calling into question what you're saying. I'm, I just, it never struck me that way. Um, but or at I, least even yeah. if it's even if it's not a you know even if you don't phrase it that way, but in
0: just sort of like. Hey, there was a big government project and it gave electricity to most of the South. And so when you when you know when Ronald Reagan comes around and says, the government's the problem, not the solution, you know us southern boys uh, should should <laughs> you know something should stick up on the back of our neck, right?
1: No, that's exactly right. I mean it's that story is is very illustrative of that of that point of, of the impact, the positive impact that the government can have. Because you look at it like the government created uh that that dam and they created the TVA and brought power and wow. industry to this area and jobs. But then you had like Ford, who's like, Yeah, I wanna I wanna rent that dam for a hundred years for like like you know, some some beads and, and like a couple of quarters I have in my pocket, like that kind of, like, it was, it was insultingly low, even for that time period, it was insultingly low. And it's like, I can't imagine what would have happened if he had been allowed to do that. But he was just like, somebody was like, I want like, you know, this thing that has benefited this, this community, I want to have it. And that seems to add odds with the kind of, uh, you know, ethos that created the whole thing. So, and he was of course defeated, but, uh, I always think it's such an interesting sort of alternate history. If he had been able to rent that dam and bring this manufacturing industry to the, to the, to the state, what would the South in general have looked like then if people weren't migrating to Northern cities for those same jobs? Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, it, there's so much. I mean, one of the, my favorite chapters to write in the book was that chapter about Jason's song TVA (laughs) and Cooley's song Uncle Frank, which is about a man who's displaced by the building of the dam, Mm -hmm. tragically displaced. And just researching that dam, just that one dam, and what it meant for, the south culturally industrially commercially culturally everything it was i don't know it was really fascinating i feel like that section of that chapter could have been an entire book mm-hmm.
0: let's uh, as we're kind of winding down i'd like to kind of come back to where we started which is the album american band um a pivotal album for them, a kind of, a kind of late career uh, peak, but one that had some, you know, quote unquote fans, uh, or you know, I give them a credit. Maybe some of them were genuine fans kind of saying, oh, you know, they've, they've sold out, they've gone liberal or something like that. Um, that, that seems like a sort of mystifying reaction to me, you know, as someone who who's paid attention to their earlier albums, what about that album do you think kind of turned off some of their, um, some of their earlier fans. I think it was just
1: this idea that, okay, they started writing about many of the things that they had been writing about all along. They were just doing it without the filter of character and setting and story. And so they were addressing things really, really directly in a way that they really hadn't. And so you have a song like Raymond Cassiano about gun control. You have a song about like what it means about you know um, uh, violence against blacks in America. They've been writing about violence. They've been writing about um, gun control. They've been writing about the urban rural divide, income inequality, all these things that they were talking about on this album. but it had always been through, these characters in these places. And so I think when you strip that away and you realize you, you show people what's at the core, I think people weren't expecting that. I don't think people thought they had been duped or anything, but they just didn't realize that the forces affecting the characters in their favorite trucker songs were these same things that were, they were singing about on American band. And I, mm-hmm. I think that that's it, it's a like I said earlier in, uh, in 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 our conversation about how that was so perfectly done that you thought that they had been planning it the entire time, mm-hmm. and I think that's true. It's it's sort of like like pulling back the curtain to say you know what's what's backstage or something. It's 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 really a powerful moment I think um, because it perfectly aligns with these national conversations we're having about so many things at that time. And, you know, it, it, when you do that, and I think in a, um, in an environment that is, is politically polarized, you, you, you will have a lot of people just, you know, rejecting it all. Mm-hmm. And they even talked about having shows where, people would come out and make a big show of leaving, like leaving in mass, like about 20, 40 people just being like, yeah, we're walking out. And it's like, well, you bought the ticket, (laughs) you know, like that's not a really good uh, protest. But uh, I think it really brought the people who did stay behind closer together. And it did sort of create this idea that Well, not create this idea, but it definitely reflected this idea that you can be Southern and you can be rural. You can even call yourself a redneck and you can still be politically progressive. Mm -hmm. You can still approach the world with compassion and empathy and curiosity rather than shut everybody out who's not like you. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why a lot of the fans really responded to that, that album, because I think it gave them something. That that you know showed showed a sort of a um, a way to to uh, sort of dissent against this idea of the South as this giant block of red states mm-hmm. that you can you can sort of be yourself and there's room for you and you're just as southern as the sort of stereotypical redneck southerner. That 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 progressivism is its is its own kind of being southern, um, and and I, I don't know. I think for me at least that was that was very important, especially at a time when all of America looked like it, it was out of whack politically and culturally. Um, you know, and and so much so that I even wondered like, should I even write this book? Should I even be writing about the South? That's why I wanted to write about Confederate monuments enrichment that's why i wanted to write about these uh, you know urban development in athens and all these things because you know it these are these are things that i i thought would be little diversions that i would take i did not know they would take up the real estate uh, in the book that they do and it was it was mainly just through listening to the the music listening to these songs, diving in and seeing where they sent me, seeing like which directions they pointed in. And I think that, you know, it, it became a political book because that's where the band ended up, but that's what they had always been all along. And I think that's, that is something I kind of realized along the way it was like, like they'd always been having these conversations Uh, it's just suddenly these conversations became more amplified on the national level. Yeah.
0: The reaction of that, that sort of cohort among the fans kind of reminds me of the meme of the guy in the cowboy hat. And it says there are only two things I love in this world, outlaw country and the law.
1: (laughs) I haven't seen that meme, but,
0: uh, yeah. It's like, yeah, I mean, you know, I understand it's a complicated thing, but like, you know, I don't think there's a single drive by truckers character that would like be happy to see the cops show up you
1: know <laughs> yeah i that's a very that's a very good way to put it <laughs>
0: Well, Stephen, I really enjoyed talking to you about this book. And um, I want to say to our listeners, too, despite the kind of uh, very specific and and kind of quoting chapter and verse nature of my questions, this is not just a (laughs) book for super hardcore DBT fans. I think it's a great I think this would be a great introduction to somebody who hasn't heard the band before and maybe interested in some of these themes. I think reading this book will give you a kind of greater appreciation for what they're up to and you know if the kind of like crunchy southern rock isn't your jam maybe reading this book as you kind of dive in would be a good way to uh to kind of understand <laughs> what they're where they're coming from a little bit more um so i would really encourage anybody who's interested to uh to check out this book um it certainly taught me a lot and uh, i really thank you for coming on the show to talk about it steven oh
1: man it's my pleasure and and uh i i i've had a blast thank you so much